is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And now it's time for a brief look into the history of air conditioning. Here's Jesse. One of the single greatest inventions in modern history is the air conditioner. Americans spend more than $22 billion a year on electricity to cool their homes with air conditioning, an average of $2,200 per household. It's hard to imagine how people lived without it. Ancient Egyptians cooled themselves at night by sleeping in wet sheets. Early Americans placed large blocks of ice in front of fans. Willis Carrier invented modern air conditioning in 1902 for a publishing company in New York that was experiencing problems when humidity caused ink to smudge and paper to expand. The New York Stock Exchange building in New York City was one of the first buildings to use air conditioning in 1903. But it wasn't until 1904 when the first private home was equipped with an air conditioner in Minneapolis. Movie theaters were among the first businesses to install air conditioning. In 1922, Carrier installed his system in a movie theater, which advertised its new system by saying that the theaters were, quote, cool as a mountaintop. Yes, you lucky people, just sit back for a moment, relax, and notice the delightfully clean, cool, and refreshing atmosphere of this scientifically air-conditioned theater. Great, isn't it? Remember, you can enjoy great motion picture entertainment all summer long in cool comfort at this theater. In 1939... Packard became the first automobile manufacturer to offer air conditioning in its cars. But it would be decades before AC became commonplace in homes across the country. Here's historian Gary Mormino. Air conditioning had, had existed in, a, in, in the larger cities since the 1920s. Uh, you could go to the premier movie theater and enjoy air-conditioned comfort. But it was unaffordable and really unrealistic for a homeowner to even dream about air conditioning. The carrier window unit came in 1951. And uh, what's interesting is it wasn't an immediate hit. For instance, uh, everyone I think assumes that everyone went out and bought a window unit in, in the summer of 1951. It was much slower than that. First of all, it was very expensive. Most homes were, were, were modestly priced. It made no sense to purchase a thousand dollar unit for a $6,000 house. Uh, the, the first census to ask home old owners whether they had air conditioning was 1960. And in 1960, only one home in five was air conditioned. But, but the future was lock set. Uh, almost all the new developments included air conditioning and, and uh, central air conditioning. Climate control was the future for growth. Uh, this, the, we, we live in air-conditioned cocoons from homes to cars to movie theaters to schools to workplaces. Uh, air conditioning uh, is omnipresent now. In Hollywood, Florida, a neighbor's newly installed air conditioner rattled all night and his neighbor took him to court and the judge ruled you might as well get used to it. This is kind of like the Model T. It's, it's the wave of the future. And it's one of those new sounds introduced after World War II, you know, the war of the, uh, of the air conditioner. Air conditioning has also created a 12-month tourist industry. 
before air conditioning, many beach communities open only a few months a year. The grand hotels in the 1930s, the Royal Palm, the Breakers, the Don Cesar, they generally only operated in the winter months for three or four months. Uh, close for the season would be the sign in, uh, in, in summer. This hot summer has got me down You can fry an egg on the street Heat waves are wiggling on the sidewalk Cops are dropping like flies on the beat I need a new loafer to take me in Protect me from this humid air Be from Brooklyn, Staten Island or Queens I don't care It don't matter what kind of loving you're into Or how big your apartment might be All you need's an air conditioner And you're the man for me Without air conditioning, we wouldn't have certain medications today. Some medications could only be studied and developed in a cool environment. Kids can thank air conditioning for summer vacation. Before air conditioners, it was too hot to learn during the summer. So the kids were granted a break, and the idea stayed. This lucky baby will sleep quietly through the night. Yes, no matter how high the temperature goes outdoors, this baby's RCA air conditioner will keep his room filled with cool, dry, fresh air, and keep that room so comfortable and quiet, he'll never need a middle-of-the-night lullaby. Yes, quiet is the word for this new 1954 RCA air conditioner, as the wonderful Heart of Cold compressor silently cools the air for you. Without air conditioning, life would be a lot harder. Not only would we be uncomfortable, we'd be fighting for our very survival. According to a recent study, Heat-related deaths have declined 80% since 1960. This can be directly attributed to widespread adoption of residential air conditioning. Harry. Ah. Uh, you sleep. Who can sleep in this heat? Think you could open the window a little wider? So we can let some more hot air in? When you're trying to beat the heat, we think you'd have better luck with the Kelvinator Speedy Mount air conditioner on your side. Even the cold water's hot. According to the National Academy of Engineering, air conditioning and refrigeration is the 10th most important achievement of the 20th century. If you're sitting in an air-conditioned room or car right now, take the time to appreciate everything AC has given us. Comfort, productivity, health, cities, and much more. Air conditioning makes us more productive and allows us to live longer, happier, cleaner, and more comfortable lives. And don't risk a breakdown during the hottest days of the year. Keep your artificial oasis going by remembering to schedule a professional AC maintenance every spring and calling a professional technician as soon as you notice a problem. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. You're as cold as ice. And great job as always to Jesse. And you know, you just forget. There was a time, 1903, the first building to use AC, the New York Stock Exchange, the first car, the Packard, in 1939. And in 1960, only one in five homes had AC. Hard to imagine. The story of air conditioning. The history of air conditioning here on Our American Stories.
Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And from 1993 to 1997, Mike Judge captured the spirit of American adolescence, epitomized by two cheap and crummy animated cartoons. Here's Greg Hengler with a story of the highly popular television show, Beavis and Butthead. (laughs) The stupid and ugly have one advantage in life. Teachers expect nothing from them, so they can fly under the usual indoctrination that accompanies education. Uh, what's this crap? Thus, the stupid and ugly, if they aren't entirely stupid, have a greater chance of being original. They're allowed to speak the truth because no one cares what they say. Because they are stupid, they are free. Beavis and Butthead Two supremely stupid and excruciatingly ugly pubescent males who live somewhere in the Southwest were the biggest phenomenon on MTV since the heyday of Michael Jackson. Their laugh, low and breathy variations of (sighs) (laughs) superseded Wayne and Garth's not as the comic catchphrase. An album and a blockbuster movie were made and their merchandising campaign swept across American malls. Mike Judge is the creator of the television series Beavis and Butthead and co-creator of the television series King of the Hill. He also wrote and directed Office Space, the now cult film about IT workers that premiered in 1999. Here's Mike Judge. I'd been interested in animation since I was a kid. I took a cartoon class at the YMCA. At the time, I didn't know what the signs of a junkie were, but now looking back, I'm pretty sure that my cartoon teacher was a junkie. Here's writer David Felton. I think the name Butthead came from some friend of his they called Iron Butt, who just liked to have people kick him as hard as they could in his butt. (laughs) Beavis and Butthead I had drawn in a sketchbook, and I kind of had them lying around, and there was this Sick and Twisted festival that Spike and Mike were doing. And I thought, I don't know if I'm going to have a career, but I may never have a chance like this again to just do whatever I want, get as out there as I want. Sometime after I'd done the first two shorts, I thought, okay, what should I should animate something with these guys. And I just went for a walk and came up with the whole idea for the short and the names and everything, I don't know, in probably like two or three minutes. (laughs) I'd remembered a kid saying something about frog baseball, which is kind of a sick game, you know. I guess I was thinking about these just out of control 14-year-olds that I've known growing up. (laughs) That would be cool. Beavis and Butthead was tested in front of a focus group in 1992. Here's executive producer Abby Turkley. (laughs) We wanted to to develop it as a series. We tested it. It tested through the roof. I didn't even know what a focus group was. I remember Abby Turkuli calling me and saying, um, you know, we showed it to a focus group up in Chicago, and I've never seen a reaction like this. Best reaction I've ever seen. It was just funny to see, because I'm hearing my voice going, you know, and then seeing these kids going, This said to be continued. Would you like to see more? Yeah. (laughs) In fact, one kid stayed after and said, can I buy can I buy this out of the tape machine? Okay. Could you like record the tape for us? You, you want to copy the tape? Okay. Here's Judy McGrath, former president of MTV Networks, turned member of Amazon's board of directors. And I thought, okay, I've been watching focus groups for, you know, ten years. I've never heard anyone say, Can I buy the tape? 
and so it was frog baseball. We tested it with women as well in separate groups, uh, and I think the women were cooler at first. I hated it. Absolutely hated it. It was horrible. It was irritating, ugly to look at. I just thought it was awful. Yeah, I don't know. I just thought it was awful. Uh, you just weren't reaching us, dude. I remember Mike's face when I uh, came up to him and I said, guess what, we got the money to do 65 episodes. Well, he turned white as a ghost and said, I can't do 65 episodes. Uh, what? And I said, don't worry, we'll get help. Have you Heimlich the victim? <laughs> no way. <laughs> Boy, the, uh, the first season, uh, they were supposed to have 22 episodes on March 8th and they had two. So we went on the air with two episodes. It was a show that was every day. Man, they were horrible. I mean, the first two episodes were awful. I don't know why anybody liked it. We cobbled together an episode out of two of my shorts and a bunch of videos. It's not just about writing, it's about writing stupid, which I felt, felt was a hard thing to do, really. It's like you have to go back to the place where thinking begins and stay there. Do you think that's funny, butthead? I hadn't even thought about ratings going into this thing. Remember after the, the first episode aired, and I thought it was awful, and I was like, gonna go bury my head in the sand, and uh, Abby called and said, we got a one last night. <laughs> I was like, What's a one mean? Uh, you know, and they said, well, usually, you know, that time slot is like a 0 .6, 0 .7. We got a one, and oh, good. Then the next night it was 1.2, the next night, it's the same episode airing over and over again. <laughs> And by Friday, it was like 1.8. The first week it went on the air, probably the third night, we got phone calls from five or six movie studios saying, you know, let's go right into production and make a movie. We heard from everybody. Retailers wanted to sell the clothes. Winger was going to reunite and go on the road. Warner Brothers wanted to make a live-action Wayne's World-type movie. You know, right away it was, uh, can you give me a Beavis and Butthead? So we l literally put the brakes on everything for a while. At first I was thinking of just, there are these two guys who uh, are just around each other all the time. They don't have a lot of other friends or any other friends. And so there's just these inside jokes that just keep on going to the point where they're just kind of laughing all the time. Okay, Armstrong. Here. Armijo. Present. Baca. Yo. Butt kiss. Here. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with you two? We've been in school over seven months now, and every single day when I call Daniel Buttkiss's name, you guys have to laugh. <laughs> Is it really still that funny? <laughs> Doesn't it ever get old? Are you going to laugh for the rest of your lives every time someone says the name Buttkiss? <laughs> <laughs> that does it. Principal's office now. Here's head writer-producer for Beavis and Butthead, Christopher Brown. They were clearly self-destructive. You've had destructive impulses, right? Uh, no. <sighs> but no matter how miserable their existence were, let's face it, they weren't living a great life. They didn't have a, a nice home. They didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> money, money, money. <laughs> Girls didn't respond to them. Hey, baby. <sighs> Other kids made fun of them and beat them up like Todd. But... They always managed to enjoy themselves. I mean, their laughter came through everything. Even when Todd kicks their and they're going, you know, oh, this sucks, you s they follow it up with a laugh. Todd's cool. Yeah. 
thinking life. <laughs> they are trying to figure things out, and they, they sort of, in their own way, philosophize about things, which is what's really great to write like that. I bet they put all the stuff that sucks on in the morning just to, like, get us to go to school. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's working. Usually I would start with the voice and then do the drawing. This one I started with a drawing, and I didn't know what they would sound like. And um, I just drawn ha, ha, ha on there. Um, I started doing that laugh, and I was kind of like going, like, this is reminding me of something. Didn't think about it till probably two years into the show that it was, there was a guy at my high school. He was uh, really smart, stoned all the time, but he would just, you'd see him in the hallway, and I would always see him when the hallway was empty, and he'd just start, like, he's one of these guys that he'd start going, huh, huh. Hey, Mike. <laughs> and so when I was do, when I would do the voice, I would just kind of do the, <laughs> and I would get I would be doing it sort of to get into character to get the voice sounding right, and then I'd go, well, that kind of sounds funny that he's just laughing all the time anyway. <laughs> 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 the Beavis laugh. There was a guy who was uh, was actually in calculus class, and he was a really smart guy. He's uh, now a nuclear engineer. Hope he doesn't figure out who he is <laughs> that I'm talking about him. But he, uh, we had a hot teacher, which was unheard of back then. She was a former Dallas Cowboys cheerleader. Uh, anyway, he would get really excited, and he just like he was biting his lip all the time and just kind of going like, <coughs> <coughs> like laughing at everything she said. So I started out with that laugh, and then I just kind of made his voice sound like the laugh, just like raspy, you know. <laughs> That's right, everyone. If we all work together and respect one another's space, we'll get through this crisis with a newfound sense of community. Get out of the street, you long-haired panty waist! Mr. Van Driesen, that was probably that was probably my favorite character other than Beavis to, to do the voice for. When I started doing that voice, I wasn't quite sure where I was getting it from. And then I remembered, I used to be a musician, and uh, I played with Sam Myers. And there's this guy from the Santa Barbara Blues Society there, and he was interviewing Sam. He just had this way of talking. He said, um, I remember him saying something like, Sam, it must have been really wonderful for you, having grown up in the Deep South, to be able to travel to Europe and experience some of their culture and share some of your culture as well. And when we come back, more of the story of Beavis and Butthead. This is Our American Stories, and we're covering the story of Beavis and Butthead, and I just love that line, you have to go back to the place where thinking begins and stay there. And that was the mindset Mike Judge and his team had to put themselves in. Let's go back to the rest of this story and return to Greg Hengler. Let's continue with Beavis and Butthead creator Mike Judge and the show's cast of characters. They say great art is difficult to understand, but easy to enjoy. <laughs> Very good, Butthead. That's right. I wanted to have this, this hippie teacher who just believes that teaching can solve any problem. That the, the, only, the problem with teenagers, it's all education. So it's always funny for me to see Mr. Van Driesen just try so hard and 
believe that they can be changed and that not only do they not learn from his lessons, they usually learn the wrong lesson from what he's saying. Why don't we each tell what impressions we took away from the museum? <clears throat> hey, buddy, what did you take away? <laughs> boy, oh boy, what I wouldn't give for five minutes alone with those little bastards that took my mower. Mr. Anderson, there's probably been five or six people in my life that talked like that. I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, actually, and it always seemed like every middle-aged authority figure had a Texas accent. I had a paper out when I was a kid. My brother and I had one. You'd go collect at the end of the month, door to door back then. We went up to the door, and uh, the guy looked at us, you know, and, he, and so it was our first month collecting. He says, well, you ain't my paper boy. My brother said, yeah, well, I know. Your paper boy quit, and we're the new paper boys. And he, well, I know what my paper boy looks like, and you ain't my paper boy. Finally, my brother said, okay, well, if you don't pay, you know, we're going to have to cancel your cancel the paper. And he said, oh, I'm going to get the paper when the real paper boy comes. And finally he swallowed his pride and he phoned in a subscription. And <laughs> Boy, I tell you what, Dusty, I felt like a one-legged cat trying to bury turds on a frozen pond out there today. Whoa, it's Todd. I know, I know. Actually, I think Sam and Chris first suggested the idea of a, of a guy who uh, beats the crap out of him, but they think he's really cool. To me, Todd reminds me of this. Uh, we had a family down at the end of, the, of our block when I was a kid, and the dad was a truck driver, and a couple of the kids had gone to jail, and they, they were teenagers while we were 10 and 11, and the middle one would just terrorize us. He'd come by on his motorcycle, ride on our lawn, patch the lawn, just scare the out of us whenever he could. I would like nothing more than to kill you both with my bare hands. There was a, a band director in ninth grade, I'm pretty sure he was an alcoholic, and he would just, he smelled like liquor in the morning, and he, he was just always, there was just, he was kind of shaking, always angry, always wound up. There was just this noise coming out of him. He was, oh, 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 what are you doing? Uh, watch your m mouth, uh, you little sons of bitches! Ah, oh. Here's what? head writer producer for Beavis and Butthead, Christopher Brown. This is starting to suck. <laughs> Do I get into heaven or not? There were Senate hearings in the fall of '93 where uh, Senator Hollings cited us as uh, as an evil, basically. Was it Buffcoat and Beaver or Beaver and something else? Uh, so clearly, he was well informed. <laughs> Well, I can see you boys aren't like the usual hooligans hanging around here. Like these two fellas, uh, Buff, Code, and Beaver. Boy, they've been nothing but trouble. Trey and Matt, the South Park guys, I remember them saying that Beavis and Butthead to them was like the blues, which was a really high compliment to me because it's, it's that kind of thing where it's just, it's the same thing over and over again, but it's good. Here's South Park co-creator Trey Parker. I remember uh, right before South Park went on the air, actually, Mike took us out to give us advice because he's just that cool of a guy. And uh, he, uh, he was sitting there going, well, you know, don't, uh, don't let people take advantage of you because <laughs> they're dumb. What's your problem, Beavis? I said stop. Here's rapper Snoop Dogg. First time I seen Beavis and Butthead would probably be, you know, one night I was falling up out of the studio and I came home and uh, just put the TV on MTV. And I peeped it out, and I was tripping because they was acting a fool. Shut up! You know what I'm saying? I just was tripping off how the two little dudes was acting. At least we have, like, lots of friends. Uh, not really. 
Are we healthy? Here's writer Larry Doyle. Mike could make almost anything sound funny. That's a very hard quality to do. I thought that Mike could make even the lamest line sound funny. He could say, butthead say, make it snappy. And there's just something about the way he said it. And, it, you know, it helped a little bit that butthead is a little bit of a lisp. You men want a date. Uh, yeah, we want two of them. And make it snappy. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. <laughs> when I was doing the this profile for Rolling Stone, I remember that uh, Patrick Stewart, Jean-Luc Picard, was a giant fan of the of the show, and he he happily talked to me not only for the article, but I'd say for about a half an hour afterwards about what episodes I had written and what his favorite episodes were. Oh no, we cannot allow ourselves to think that. Here again is Trey Parker. The point of the show, you know, was the great satirical look at sort of where a lot of teenagers in America were at the time. And, and it really was, I think, a very scathing, very harsh, uh, and, and almost a, a very open your eyes, people. And, and, you know, now I know Mike en enough to know that there was a lot more behind it, you know. And, and Mike is a, a very good guy and a very cool guy. And he actually you know, was, was trying to say something, you know, that, that this, this is starting to be our youth, and if we're not careful, this is going to be our youth. <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to feel it. <laughs> you know, Beavis, it doesn't get any better than this. <laughs> something that's good, it doesn't matter how great, it doesn't matter how slick it is. You don't need Disney, you don't need these sweet graphics. If something's funny and something's good, you can have it look that crappy, and, and it inspired us in that way just to go, let's just do it ourselves, we'll do it with construction paper if we have to. It really got us into this conversation about satire and how there was no good satire out there, and, and we wanted to do the same thing Mike did. I always reference TV I grew up on because that's the, that's still, I guess it's whatever age you are, you're gonna, you know, the thing that really cements itself in your head is the first stuff you liked on television. And I, I loved the Beverly Hillbillies, Leave It to Beaver, Andy Griffith show. There's actually a line you could draw between Beavis and Butthead and Andy Griffith in terms of the style of the way the comedy worked. Even though the topics were very different, the, the character comedy was very much the same. Oh, hey there, Master Cleaver. Aren't you supposed to be in school? Well, I guess so. B but all I know is I'm supposed to come in here and buy some cigarettes. Hey, you wouldn't be buying these for Eddie now, would you? Gee, how'd you know? <laughs> you know, if you look at it from a comedy math point of view, it's really very old-fashioned kind of humor even though at the time it was upsetting people with the topics that it was. I mean, it was, they were just dumb guys. And that's a real, there's a real long tradition of dumb guy comedies. <laughs> you guys aren't drunk. You're just stupid. Here's former president of Viacom, Van Toffler. I think it's really about um, being true to what, you know, teen boys do and the prism through which they see life and particularly innocent, one, innocent ones like those two. I mean, they are really base, and whatever they feel comes out of their mouths. And um, I sort of was that when I was a teenager, I'd sad to say, but everyone knows Beavis and Butthead. You could relate to it, animated or real. They were part of your life at some point. To me, Beavis and Butthead, when it's good, has that thing, it's a ridiculous premise. Three Stooges, it's the same thing over and over again, but I can keep watching it. Cheech and Chong, I don't, 
you know, you just kind of want to be there with those guys. And, and I kind of hoped that Beavis and Butthead would be in that category. I'm just glad it's finally over. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, really. At least now we can get on with our lives. And great job, as always, by Greg Hengler. The story of Beavis and Butthead. It's Mike Judge's story, too. And, of course, he gave us South Park. And, my goodness, what a contribution to American culture. Both of these silly, stupid, the Three Stooges, of course, being the driving force behind all of this. And stuff like it. Teenage adolescents, boys. Mike Judge, Beavis and Butthead, here on Our American Stories. we continue with our American stories and all month long we're bringing you the best commencement speeches of the last 20 years. It's commencement time all across this great country. And our next one is Denzel Washington and his commencement address to Dillard University's class of 2015. What an acting career Denzel's had. Nine Oscar nominations, best supporting actor for Glory in 1990 and best actor for Training Day in 2002 and a Tony Award for his performance in Fences on Broadway in 2010. Let's take a listen to Denzel's commencement address. Let me uh, take this moment to wholeheartedly congratulate each and every one of you today. You graduated. You did it. You made it. Congratulations to you. And you did it all by yourselves. Nobody helped you. <laughs> no, that's not true. That's, you know, that's what I thought when I was... Uh, when I was young, I uh, starting to really make it as an actor. I came in, I talked to my mother. I said, Ma, did you think that this was going to happen? I'd be so big and I'll be able to take care of everybody and I can do this and I can do that. And I can. she said, boy, stop it right there. Stop it right there. Stop it right there. He said, if you only knew how many people that had been praying for you, how many prayer groups she put together, how many prayer cloths she gave me, how many times she splashed me with holy water <laughs> to save my sorry behind as she said it. She said, oh, you did it by yourself? I tell you what you can do by yourself. You can go outside, get a mop and a bucket and wash them windows. You can do that by yourself, superstar. So I'm saying that to say I want to congratulate all the parents and friends and family and aunties and uncles and grandmothers and grandfathers and teachers and friends and, and enemies. <laughs> all the people that helped you to get where you are today. Congratulations to, to you all. I'm going to tell about two, three stories. I'm going to keep it real short. Uh, I remember my graduation. Speaker got up there, went on forever, blah, 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 blah. So I'm going to keep it short. Number one. Put God first. Put God first in everything you do. Everything that you think you see in me, everything that I've accomplished, everything that you think I have, and I have a few things, everything that I have is by the grace of God. 
Understand that. It's a gift. 40 years ago, March 27, 1975, it was 40 years ago, uh, just this past March, I was flunking out of college. I had a 1.7 grade point average. I hope none of you can relate. <laughs> at a 1.7 grade point average, I was sitting in my mother's beauty shop. They still call it beauty shops now? What they call it now? Yeah, I was sitting in the beauty parlor. I was sitting in my mother's beauty parlor, and I'm looking in the mirror, and I see behind me this woman under the dryer. And every time she looked up, she, every time I looked up, she was looking at me, just looking me in the eye. And I didn't know who she was, and I said, you know, she said, somebody give me a pen. Give me a pencil. I have a prophecy. March 27, 1975, she said, boy, you are going to travel the world and speak to millions of people. Now, mind you, I was flunked out of college. I'm thinking about joining the Army. I didn't know what I was going to do, and she's telling me I'm going to travel the world and speak to millions of people. Well, I have traveled the world, and I have spoke to millions of people. But that's not the most important thing, the success that I had. The most important thing is that what she taught me and what she told me that day has stayed with me since. I've been protected. I've been directed. I've been corrected. I've kept God in my life and has kept me humble. I didn't always stick with him, but he always stuck with me. So stick with him in everything you do. If you think you want to do what you think I've done, then do what I've done and stick with God. Number two, fail big. That's right. Fail big. Today is the beginning of the rest of your life, and it can be, it can be very frightening. It's a new world out there. It's a mean world out there, and you only live once. So do what you feel passionate about. Take chances professionally. Don't be afraid to fail. There's an old IQ test was nine dots, and you had to draw five lines with a pencil within these nine dots without lifting the pencil. The only way to do it was to go outside the box. So don't be afraid to go outside the box. Don't be afraid to think outside the box. Don't be afraid to fail big, to dream big, but remember, Dreams without goals are just dreams, and they ultimately fuel disappointment. So have dreams, but have goals, life goals, yearly goals, monthly goals, daily goals. I try to give myself a goal every day. Sometimes it's just to not curse somebody out. <laughs> Simple goals, but have goals. And understand that to achieve these goals, you must apply discipline and consistency. In order to achieve your goals, you must apply discipline, which you have already done, and consistency every day, not just on Tuesday and miss a few days. You have to work at it every day. You have to plan every day. You've heard the saying, we don't plan to fail, we fail to plan. Hard work works. Working really hard is what successful people do. And in this text, tweet, 
twerk world that you've grown up in. <laughs> Remember, just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Remember that. Just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Don't confuse movement with progress. My mother told me, she said, yeah, because you can run in place all the time and never get anywhere. So continue to strive, continue to have goals, continue to progress. Number three, you'll never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. <laughs> I'll say it again. You'll never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. I don't care how much money you make, you can't take it with you. The Egyptians tried it. They got robbed. That's all they got. You can't take it with you. And it's not how much you have. It's what you do with what you have. We all have different talents. Some of you will be doctors, some lawyers, some scientists, some educators, some nurses, some teachers. Yeah, okay. <laughs> some preachers. The most selfish thing you can do in this world is help someone else. Why is it selfish? Because the gratification, the goodness that comes to you, the good feeling, the good feeling that I get from helping others, nothing's better than that. Well, one or two things, but nothing's better than that. Not jewelry, not big house I have, not the cars, but the, the, it's the joy. That's where the joy is in helping others. That's where the success is in helping others. Finally, I pray that you put your slippers way under the bed tonight so that when you wake up in the morning, you have to get on your knees to reach them. And while you're down there, say thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for understanding. Thank you for wisdom. Thank you for parents. Thank you for love. Thank you for kindness. Thank you for humility. Thank you for peace. Thank you for prosperity. Say thank you in advance for what's already yours. That's how I live my life. That's where I, why I am, one of the reasons why I am today. Say thank you in advance for what is already yours. True desire in the heart for anything good is God's proof to you sent beforehand to indicate that it's yours already. I'll say it again. True desire in the heart, that itch that you have, whatever it is you want to do, that thing that you want to do to help others and to grow and to make money, that desire, that itch, that's God's proof to you sent beforehand already to indicate that it's yours. And anything you want good, you can have. So claim it. Work hard to get it. When you get it, reach back. Pull someone else up. Each one, teach one. Don't just aspire to make a living. Aspire to make 
a difference. Thank you. And you were listening to Denzel Washington, his Dillard University Class of 2015 speech. And you haven't heard it many places, folks, but what a speech. Put God first. That's how he started it. And let's face it, folks, that's how we ended it. Say thank you for grace, for understanding, for mercy, for love. Say thank you in advance for what is already yours. Denzel Washington, what a beauty. The commencement address given in 2015 at Dillard University. This is Our American Story. our American stories and we tell stories of all kinds here on this show from the arts to sports and from history to business and your stories too. send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org that's ouramericannetwork.org we'll put them together and we'll send them right back out to you over the airwaves your stories are as good as any we put together this next story is a really good one we love telling you stories about people you should know but don't and particularly about innovators in their field because there's always a lot of pain in innovation. There's disruption, and in disruption and change, there is often difficulty. And this next person, well, I happen to know him well, he's my doctor. Let's throw it to Joey for a remarkable life story. When you think of leaders in innovation, who comes to mind? Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, Steve Jobs, all true giants in American history. Some of those stories that we've told on the show. But how about Cooper? Dr. Ken Cooper. You probably haven't heard his name, but you should have. He's the physician to presidents and CEOs and has helped put astronauts in space. And if that's not enough, his life's work has most likely impacted your life personally. Do you exercise? Has anyone, a loved one, or a doctor ever told you that you should exercise? Well, like it or not, the father of that movement, that way of life, is Dr. Ken Cooper, the father of aerobics. The practice of vigorous exercise to strengthen the heart, lungs, and general health. Aerobics, a term that before Dr. Cooper wasn't even in the dictionary. Today, it is largely accepted in medicine, but not so much in the 1960s. Here's Dr. Ken Cooper on the medical community's response to his book titled Aerobics. And let's just say that the doctors and scientists at the time, especially the older ones, were not too receptive of this revolutionary thing called aerobics. When the book first came out in 1968, I actually saw titles in medical newspaper articles that the street's going to be full of dead joggers. There's more Americans follow Cooper. Every time someone had died while jogging, I heard about it. And I thought for a while I was responsible for that. But then you start putting the figures together. And you see that when people start reading the book, 1968, had 100,000 joggers. By 1984, we had 34 million joggers. And by 1990, we had 35 million joggers. And from 1906 to 1990, heart disease dropped 48%. All of this began while Dr. Ken Cooper was working in the Air Force. Cooper was recruited to create the fitness program for NASA astronauts. 
where he would refine his big idea, aerobics, the groundwork for preventive medicine, a practice that, quote, focuses on the health of individuals, communities, and defined populations to protect, promote, and maintain health and well-being, and to prevent disease, disability, and even death. A medical practice that America, according to Dr. Ken Cooper, is in dire need of. It's been deplorable that the obesity in our children has gone from 13% in 1990 to 33% overweight or obese at the present time. Our adults have gone from 33% in 1990 to 80% in this, in this country. We haven't done much about it. 76% of the diseases we have are the result of our lifestyle. 45% of cancers are preventable. And we spend twice as much money as anybody else in the world on health care. And we rank 43rd in longevity. Too much care, too late. And so we've got to make those changes. Changes that Dr. Ken Cooper would experience in his youth. As a kid, one of Ken's dreams was to become an Olympic runner. And he was pretty darn close, running a 4-minute and 30-second mile in high school. And back then, that was a big deal. But such is the case with many of us, Ken's fitness would take a sharp decline as he would start the next chapter of his life. I got to college for four years and soon discovered that obesity is the most common manifestation of stress. So I jumped from 168 by the time I finished medical school, internship, and I got married. For an eight-year period, I did nothing but eat. I gained up at 204 pounds. I was dying of mental apathy. I was, had to go in the military for two years to pay back the being deferred from the draft. During that was in the Vietnam conflict. But then something happened that changed my life. Been an excellent water skier during my youth. At 29 years of age, I went water skiing for the first time in eight years, trying to see it, ski a slalom course at Lake Texoma, southern Oklahoma. About halfway through the slalom course, way overweight, deconditioned, I had a cardiac arrhythmia to hit me. And I thought I was having a heart attack. My heart just jumping out of my chest, beating very, very rapidly. I was lightheaded, and I thought I was going to pass out out there on the water. They got me over at the site, got me on through the emergency room. The time I got the emergency room, it was all back to normal. I had a very extensive workout back at uh, Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio with my heart, and they couldn't find anything wrong. One thing wrong with me, I was out of shape. And so that shot me back into reality. So I lost the weight within six months. I ran my first marathon a year and a half later. And as you know, I ran for 40 years before I broke my leg snow skiing back in 2004. But what happened to me, prior to the time I lost that weight, I was hypertensive, I was borderline diabetic, I had no energy. I told my wife I felt like I was dying from mental apathy. That all changed. And I felt much better, physically fitter, less depressed, less of a hypochondriac, improved self-image, much more positive attitude towards life. That happened to me. And I thought, this is a field of medicine that's been sadly ignored, what we can do for ourselves. I was planning on being an ophthalmologist, an orthopedic surgeon, after I finished my two years in the military. But this dramatic thing happened to me, I think that was divine because the Lord had a plan for me. And so that changed my life and changed my direction. I transferred from the Army to the Air Force to go into the space program. I thought I'd be a NASA astronaut. Lost the weight, running regularly, run the Boston Marathon twice, became a quote-unquote expert in the Air Force because Master's of Public Health the first year at Harvard School of Public Health. Worked on Doctor of Science next year. Left, went back to the military, and I was the Air Force expert. Worked in designing exercise program for the astronauts. Developed the aerobics when I was in the Air Force. So that 
episode with my obesity problem, I was able to change my life and that probably saved my life. Because the uh, majority of my medical school colleagues graduated in 1956 were the same thing. And back in those days, half of them smoked. And now there's only 20 of us left. Because I'm afraid that most of those uh, colleagues of mine didn't have that wake-up call that I had at 29 years of age. And they died young in life. And so I think that was a wake-up for me that it saved my life and changed my profession. And more on the life story of the father of aerobics and one of the leaders in preventive medicine in this country. The story of Dr. Ken Cooper continues after these commercial messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Dr. Ken Cooper. And by the way, he had said earlier, the Lord had a plan for me, and my goodness, he did. And Dr. Cooper is a believer and a man of science, and that happens every day here in this great country. Let's pick up where we last left off. We left off with Ken's accident shocking him back to health. An accident that with the additional inspiration from a book he read would thrust him into a vocation that would help people from around the world live healthier and longer lives. I read a book entitled Halftime. And in this book, Bob Buford said you can be successful, not significant. That was me. You can be successful, but not significant. I was successful in the eyes of the military. But you can't become a general officer unless you have some administrative experience. You've got to leave what you've been doing all those years. I said, I'll gladly finish my 20 years. Let me stay here. I'll get a rank of a colonel. I'll be perfectly satisfied. Let me stay here and continue what I've been doing. I'm having an impact on the military. Until after I left, that the Air Force said the most significant contribution that Air Force Medical Services made to medicine was the aerobics program. A program whose potential was not fully realized at the time. And because of the military's administrative glass ceiling, preventing him from rising through the ranks and making a greater impact, Dr. Ken Cooper decided to take a big risk. I'm getting out. I had no insurance, had no separation pay, had a wife that's pregnant with my son Tyler, had a five-year-old daughter, moved from, with our dog Christy, a Cocker Spaniel, we moved at the Grapes of Wrath, from uh, San Antonio to Dallas. It hadn't been for Joe McKinney and the Totter Corporation called Saturn Industry back in those days, I'd be here today. Because after still in the military, back in 1968, he read the book, Aerobics, excited about the book so much that he asked me to speak to his corporate executives at Lakeway down near Austin, Texas Lake Travis. And so I spoke to his top executives there, and he was so enthralled with the concept of what I was talking about, the aerobics program and all, and the book, that he said, if you ever decide to leave the military and you want to come to Dallas and start something on your own, let me know. I put that in the back of my mind. But two years later, I came to Dallas and I thought that I had two successful books, but you don't have any, I had a financial statement worth about $25,000 and that was all. You don't have much money, particularly myself, softback books back in those early days. And so I thought I could raise enough money to build this center, starting with only 8.6 acres. 
Well, I went to savings and loans, and they uh, wanted to know what I was going to use for collateral. I thought that was something around the blood pressure obstructed. Sorry, son, we can't help you. And I just finally bummed out. And I went to Joe McKinney and said, Joe, here I am. I, I can't do it by myself. Can you help me? We'll try. And so I needed $1.6 million to buy this property here, the first 8.6 acres of 30 acres we have now. And so he said, okay, put it before his board. We won by one vote. That they loaned me the money, no interest. For six months, I paid no interest. And so I was able to buy the property. And then it took me 11 months downtown before I could move out here in early 1971. But I had to borrow $2,000 a month, pay mother to employees. I lived on savings. So it was tough. And they got to Dallas and uh, went from from the fire from the frying pan to the fire because this was very controversial back in those days in 1970, 1971. After years of refining and practicing aerobics and collecting an incredibly large amount of data, Ken's mission, his vocation, would become mainstream. But it certainly wasn't easy to get there. And to fully understand how Dr. Ken Cooper would successfully weather this pushback, we have to understand his relationship with his father, a man who wasn't foreign to such criticism. His father, a Depression-era dentist, was similarly rejected by the science community for subscribing to what was at the time also revolutionary, the nutritional supplementation of vitamins. So my dad was a strong proponent of vitamins, the alphabet tablets. And back in those days, even when I was in medical school, I was taught that vitamin supplementation was worthless. It makes the pharmacist rich and the toilet water very expensive. And you're wasting your time on vitamins. And to some extent, that was true back in those days because we had good food, good diets by and large. We had not a lot of processing foods like we have at the present times. And, and the foods weren't deficient in vitamins like they are at the present time. And that's what's become necessary for us to supplement our diets with vitamins because the processing food, the growing of food, the deterioration of the soil, all these various things. So my father was ahead of his time there. And so he wrote strongly recommend, and I grew up with the supplemental vitamin therapy. I thought he was nuts back in those days because I was being taught to the contrary in medical school. And here, according to Dr. Ken Cooper, is how the medical community responded to his father. They all thought he was a quack because his emphasis on vitamins but they also accused my father of practicing medicine because many times people would come to him with their pyrrhea problems, their dental problems, but changed their diet, changing their diets, and they found that their, that their arthritis improved and their diabetes improved. And so he actually saw other benefits by trying to improve the situation of mouth that had a total body effect. They'd actually accused him of trying to practice medicine without a license. So that was how much innovator my father was. He felt threatened, but he's still the same as I've done. He stuck to what he believed until the time of his death. So my father, without question, was a tremendous impact on my life. But I think what he, more than anything else, what he taught me was discipline. Was my weight, my diet, my exercise, my studying, my good grades in school. All these various things I attribute to my father. Ingenuity, determination, and discipline all qualities passed on by his father to help Ken weather the trials to come. Here's Ken on how the medical community responded to aerobics. 
Exercise was dangerous. It shouldn't be done. Past 40 years of age, they died of a heart attack. That was still prominent thinking up until 1989. After collecting data on the effects of exercise and stress testing on health, Ken started to make waves, releasing their projected findings that aerobics would not only drastically improve your health, but add six years onto your life. We published that front page, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, American Heart Association said for the first time in all these years that your aerobic capacity is a major coronary risk factor. In 2009, we had uh, 96,000 people, men and women, who had fought it for 20 years. And we predicted, we couldn't prove this yet, but we predicted our men would live 87.5 years, women 90.5 years. That's over 10 years longer than the national average. That was predicted and controversial in 2009. But within the past couple of months, Harvard School of Public Health published an interesting study on their physicians and nurses study. 34-year follow-up, 126,000 people in the study. They looked at these risk factors. Proper weight, proper diet, exercising at least 30 minutes, no use of tobacco in any form, and then only minimal alcohol consumption, five things. And what they showed, those people had, didn't have any good risk factors. The women's average life expectancy was 79.5 years, and men 75.5 years. But they had none of those risk factors. The average life expectancy for men was 87.5 years, women 93.5 years, almost exactly what I said 10 years earlier. Based on prediction, it's now come full force. That has happened so many things now that I predicted, had criticism of all magnitude that have come full circle. And you're listening to Dr. Ken Cooper. He just happens to be my doctor. But my goodness, the things he's teaching Americans about weight, about diet, about exercise, and people around the world, how to control our health care costs, will do these things, and how to extend your life and live better and longer. Do those things. Eat right. Exercise. Again, at the time, people thought he was crazy. We learned this from innovators in almost every walk of life that we've covered thus far. And 30 years later, look at the data and look at the research. Men living 87.5 years, women 90 plus. More on Dr. Ken Cooper's story here on Our American Stories. And by the way, to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, sign up for our free newsletter, and if you do, you'll get our five best stories each week in print and audio form. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Ken Cooper's story continues here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with the story of Dr. Ken Cooper, the father of aerobics and preventive medicine, and one of the leaders of preventive medicine and healthcare around the world, not just the United States. And we left off with Ken receiving great criticism from the scientific community, claiming that exercise and stress testing would not help but actually harm patients. Ken's findings would prove otherwise, and unfortunately, so would some patients. Back to Ken with the story. A 57-year-old pastor here in town, and you heard me speak at a luncheon, trying to generate patients. I'd speak at the Rotary Clubs and things like that. Never got paid for anything. But then he heard me speak and heard me say that if you're over 40 years of age, you should have a stress test before you start a vigorous exercise program because most common first symptoms of your heart disease is sudden death. People don't buy it until it's too late. He heard me say that. And so he came up in a little office, way overweight, 57 years of age. I put him on the treadmill. I stopped it in two minutes. I said, sir, there's a prominent pastor, a very large church here in Dallas. And I said, sir, you have severe coronary disease. You need to be hospitalized immediately. What do you mean? Your EKG is grossly abnormal. Oh, I saw my physician the other day, did a resting EKG. Say, you don't have any heart disease. That Cooper's a nut. I'll run him out of town. I said, okay, sir. If you're hospitalized for the next 24 hours, I'm washing my hands of your case. Called his physician. I've been practicing medicine now for 62 years. And the only one time I've been cursed up another physician, and that was that physician. What are you doing, you so-and-so? You ought to get back in the Air Force. You're a nut. I'll run you out of town. You're a quack. Okay, sir. I'll accept that. But the fact this man has serious disease needs to be attended to immediately. I don't believe that. That's a bunch of baloney. Okay? I'm washing my hands of his, of his case. And 10 days later, sitting at his desk, he collapsed and died. And the first person to call me was that physician. I didn't know. I didn't know. He's afraid of malpractice because I'm sure he told the family, forget about Cooper, he's a nut. And he was afraid that somebody going to file suit because he told the patient, don't worry about him. We lost a very prominent and successful intelligent pastor who could, could be alive today. But fortunately, years later, after many trials and tribulations, the medical community has not only taken their target off of Dr. Ken Cooper's back, but has embraced aerobics and preventive medicine. The Lord's given me a long life to see it happen during my lifetime. So now it's, it's worldwide. And as you can tell, Ken is not only a science guy, but also a God guy. The media tries to tell us that they can't coexist, but Dr. Ken Cooper has reason to believe otherwise. I went to, uh, with my son to climb Kilimanjaro in Africa, 1989. There were six fathers and sons in the group. I knew ahead of time I couldn't uh, spend the whole time because I didn't want to go above 14,000 feet because I had too much time in the Air Force at a high altitude. And I didn't want to have more damage to my brain. So I just planned on going to the 14,000 feet. But going across the border there, going from Kenya, where we trained for about 10 days to climb that 19,000-foot mountain, and going across the border from Kenya into Tanzania, they wouldn't let me across because I had a stamp in my passport from South Africa because the apartheid and all that. No, no, you can't come into Tanzania. That's not possible. Well, I asked the guy, what's going to cost me? About $35. So I bribed my way to get in to Tanzania. But then after I left the group, I did go 14,000 foot up and back one day. 
But then the next morning, I was being driven back to the border with a gentleman who didn't speak any English. And so I was getting close to the border. I started really worrying. I'm illegal. I don't have a stamp in my passport to get me through here. And if I find out that I have that stamp from South Africa, they may put me in jail. I mean, I was terrified, literally. And I didn't know what to do. I was by myself there and no one, didn't know anybody. Most of them couldn't speak English. And I was actually standing in line with two people in front of me when all of a sudden this beautiful woman dressed in white came up beside me. Dr. Cooper, I've been waiting for you. Give me your passport. And so I gave her my passport, walked up. She opened the passport in a very profound voice. She said, stamp it so he couldn't see anything. And then he closed it back up, gave it back to me, the one there. I was the only person who saw that, that woman. You think that was happenstance? To my dying days, I believe that was an angel. And that dying day doesn't seem to be any day soon. Dr. Ken Cooper, at 87 years old, is still working harder than ever. My wife has made the comment, don't you wish you had as much a passion about anything as my husband does about what he's doing? And that's true. It's what keeps me. I don't have to work anymore. I'm well off. I can retire. I'd be bored sick. Gone for almost three weeks. Beautiful cruise. I could hardly wait to get back. And see, patience. I mean, yes, I had a Charlie Duke here. Only one of four living astronauts who's walked on the moon. He was very interested. Been my patient since 19, 1998. So that type of thing. I love my patients. Had a new patient today. I spent an hour and a half with him or longer. And he just couldn't believe I'm spending so much time with this patient. Because what has made successful and why patients stand in line to come. He was an overbook that I took today. What didn't plan on taking a patient today. But I enjoy it. And he's a top CEO. He's not a CEO. He's, but his CEO has all the people coming here. He's the top vice president of his organization. And I had a delightful time with him. That motivates me. I enjoy my work. How many people you know at 87 years of age who still enjoy their work? You know, I like what uh, the promotional speaker of uh, uh, Zig Ziglar once said. You don't retire, you refire. I'm still refiring. Dr. Ken Cooper, at 87 years old, still refiring indeed. At 87 years old, exercising, maintaining a healthy diet, and living longer, healthier, and happier. All because he follows his own advice. Dr. Ken Cooper, from helping put astronauts in space to helping society become healthier. For Our American Stories, I'm Joey Cortez. And great job on that, Joey. And thanks also to the Stetson Family Office in New York. And they work well diligently on this issue of preventive medicine and the Healthcare Impact Foundation, which they manage. Well, they're trying to solve this problem for cities and countries around the world because, my goodness, we're chewing up so much of our money as a society on care that comes too little and too late, as Dr. Cooper acknowledged and is working his life uh, to help fix. And also, I'm a patient with Dr. Cooper, and I can only tell you in four months I'm going back, and uh, he does put you through the paces, and you go on this treadmill, and he, he, he's, he's like a coach. You're a little afraid of him, and he spends two hours with you. Two hours you're going to have a doctor with you. And at 87, he's on fire, and he is working a full day, 
And when you go in and you spend some time with them, after that two hours, boom, the next person's coming in, and then the next, and then the next. And he was telling me that his little routine includes a movie with his bride on Saturday nights, a little break on Saturday afternoons. He comes into work on Saturday, too, just to review all of the the patient's files to make sure everything's working right. Uh, This is a guy who loves his work, and Americans love work, and we love talking about Americans at work. Work is so important in our lives, and my goodness, it gives meaning to our lives. I might also do a call out to Bob Buford's book, Halftime, because it changed so many people's lives in this country. If you haven't read it, you should pick it up. And that whole point about having a successful life, but not a significant one, well, it really hit a lot of men in their 50s. And they just changed. They started changing things. And I mean really changing things. Dr. Ken Cooper's story here on Our American Stories. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all the things that we do. And again, sign up for our free newsletter. Please get friends to do it too. We'll send you our five best stories each week in audio form and in written form if you prefer to read our stories. But my goodness. It's so much more fun hearing the voices of these people. The legend, the story of Dr. Ken Cooper, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, we celebrate the youngest American to earn the Medal of Honor since the Civil War. He died on this day in history in 2008. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. This is the story of a boy named Jacqueline. Jacqueline Harold Lucas, who always went by Jack, was born in a little town in North Carolina whose population could not fill one-tenth of the modern Dean Dome for a Tar Heels basketball game. And growing up, Jack was a handful. My father died when I was 11 years old, and I uh, became kind of a tough kid after that to handle. My mother couldn't handle me. She sent me off to military school. He excelled at the Edwards Military Institute, He was a cadet captain, led the football team, and enjoyed pretty much anything involving a ball, a pair of boxing gloves, a horse, or a gun. But then came December 7th, 1941. Word of the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor reached young Jack in the dining hall. That day, uh... Cold chill came over me, and I knew, and I was became obsessed from that day one that I wanted to kill Japanese. They uh, hurt my country, and I sought every way I could to get into the Marine Corps. I was young, but I knew that I could fight. To join the Marine Corps, a man had to be 18. 
or 17 if a parent signed off on it. But Jack, well, Jack was just 13. So he spent the rest of 8th grade trying to talk his mother into saying that he was 17. His mother quickly figured out that she couldn't stop him, but she also refused to lie for him. So I had to forge my own consent papers, and I went to Norfolk, Virginia, and signed up at 14. I had turned 14 years old then. And with that, the 5'8", 180-pound, 14-year-old went off to Paris Island. He did well at boot camp, and again at heavy machine gun training at Camp Lejeune. Higher-ups wanted to keep Jack as an instructor while the rest of his unit headed west to fight. But Jack being Jack, he just hopped on the train with the rest of his buddies and was soon headed to Japan by way of California and Hawaii. And everything would have worked out just fine, except for a little hiccup involving a letter to a girl that was read by the censors. A girl wrote me a letter and said she was 15 years old. And of course I replied to her that I was just 15. I didn't think about the censor getting a hold of my letter and seeing I was 15 years old. So they let the outfit move on out to Raw and left me behind. I couldn't understand that. And after we were gone, the colonel called me and said, we know you're only 15 years old. We don't prepared to discharge you. I said, well, my mother doesn't complain about it. You put the training into me, and if you don't let me stay, I'll go back and join the Army and give them the benefit of Marine Corps training. So the colonel let the 15-year-old stay, but this was not a 15-year-old who would be content doing desk work and driving supply trucks around Hawaii. So a lot of guys that get in trouble, they ship, ship them out to combat. So I went on a fighting binge. 17 straight liberties got locked up 17 times fighting. And it wasn't getting me anywhere. I said, man, I got to wise up and learn. I'm a slow learner, I guess. Troop ships full of combat Marines bound for the Pacific would stop in Hawaii to give the Marines one more round of fun before hitting the enemy-held beaches. So repeating his trick to leave North Carolina... Jack blended in with the crowd of Marines and made himself at home aboard the USS Duel, bound for Iwo Jima. I didn't have a bit of trouble to going to the child lines. I told everybody I was on guard duty, and all the guards signed guard duty could go in front of the child line and eat. So I, so I just, every day, every meal, I'd go in front of the child line. Never did have a wait. Well, I did this for 29 days, and finally they said, you better turn yourself in you'll be declared a deserter. So I didn't want my picture back in the post office and my mom would see it. So I turned myself in and the colonel says, boy, I'd love to have a boatload of fellows want to fight as bad as you do. The next week, Jack celebrated his 17th birthday. And five days after that, the Marines enjoyed an early breakfast of steak, eggs, and bourbon and hit the beaches of Iwo Jima. That was one terrific place to try to get up off of. The beach was about a 45-degree angle, and it was like running in beanbags. We fought again across the islands that, that afternoon and that day, 
and stops on the other side near the neck just below Mount Suribachi. We moved out the next day and we really got hammered bad with mortar fire. A lot of our boys were really torn to pieces and they would fire like in checkerboard fashion uh, so that you couldn't calculate where the next attack mortar would be. In this hectic environment, Jack and his four-man fire team advanced through the Japanese trenches, clearing enemies from dug-in positions. Jack's team leader jumped into a neighboring trench to see what was there, but he hopped right back. He had landed on the back of a Japanese soldier, which might have been easy to deal with, except that there were 10 other Japanese soldiers. And so began a messy firefight between four Marines and 11 Japanese. All these Japanese stood up in front of us and we opened fire. And we're too close to put it rifle to our shoulder. We, we uh, fired off hand. And we opened fire, I shot two. The second one I shot, of all things, my rifle jammed. But of course it was, it was just fate to happen. Because if I hadn't, I wouldn't, none of us would have seen the grenades. Looking down to clear his rifle, Jack spotted two enemy hand grenades. The Japanese Type 97 frag grenade was about a pound of metal wrapped around two ounces of explosives set off by a fuse that had a five second delay. So here is the $64,000 question. When were those grenades tossed into the trench? If they came in just a moment ago, then Jack could pick them up, return to sender, and kill some Japanese. But if they had been there for two, three, or even four seconds, then picking them up would let the grenades explode at the head level of the Marines. And as bad as it is to have two grenades by your feet, two grenades by your head, that's worse. With no more time to think, Jack jumped on one grenade and reached out to pull the other one to tuck it under his own body. Now fortunately, one grenade was a dud, but the other one wasn't. It blew me over my back and blew my arm away and around behind me. It did not knock me out, but it punctured my right lung. I had couple hundred holes in me. It was like anything from uh, a BB shot to a 22. I was bleeding profusely from the nose and mouth. And I tell you one thing, buddy. I said, God save me. I didn't call upon mama or anybody else. I said, God, please save me. The other three members of Jack's fire team killed the remaining Japanese and left Jack for dead. But what they didn't expect and couldn't see was that Jack was in fact alive. And in this mess of volcanic ash, dust, and shrapnel, Jack was twitching the fingers on his left hand, desperately trying to show somebody, anybody, that he was still alive. Another group of Marines spotted Jack, and they called for one of the unsung heroes of infantry combat, a Navy corpsman. And in the middle of patching Jack up, this corpsman had to take a little break to deal with an uninvited guest. And while he was kneeling there, he's facing towards this open hole at the end of the trench and shot another Jap that had come out to lobby another grenade on me. So, buddy, I really love corpsman. He saved my life. Thanks to the Herculean efforts of this corpsman, stretcher bearers, and many Marines, sailors, and doctors along the way, Jack Lucas survived after 22 surgeries. 
As Jack recovered stateside, his plans of meeting up with his girlfriend were rudely interrupted. President Truman decorates a group of 14 Marine and Navy men for heroism above and beyond the call of duty. 17-year-old Private Lucas, who enlisted at 14, threw himself on an exploding grenade to save his fellow men. Walter Band saluted, President said, I'd rather have this medal be President of the United States. And I said, sir, I'll swap you. Marines have an odd sense of humor, and you would too if you've lived their lives. Remember how Jack was a stowaway and turned himself in to the colonel on the 8th of February? Well, it takes some time for word to travel from ship to shore. So on the 10th of February, Jack's 30th day of unauthorized absence, officials back on land demoted Jack to private and marked him as a deserter. And desertion is a crime potentially punishable by death. So this is the story of a boy named Jack who forged his way into the Marines at 14, deserted his way into the most dangerous combat zone in the world at 16, and earned our nation's highest award for valor six days after his 17th birthday. (laughs) Could you imagine a better resume for a Marine legend and an American hero? That's Jack Lucas. Great job as always, Stan, and Jack Lucas's life story. He died on this day in history in 2008. This is Our American Stories.